Do you listen to your food? <laughs> Ever give it a big hug? Just stare at it? On this show, two Ollie food and drink connoisseurs explore the secret flavor senses of sound, sight, and touch, and how they affect taste. For instance, these two experts don't just drink champagne. They see, they feel, and most importantly, they listen to it. For me, that pop is, you know, everybody loves the champagne cork pop. I don't do the pop as much. When you go through restaurant service training, they'll try to avoid popping it. And it should sound like a nun sighing. <laughs> nun sighing, I, I start to think of something different. <laughs> we are about to whet your appetite. Total Wine Executive, Sean Rich Creek, and food consultant, Sean Shepard, toast champagne, and other sounds, shapes, and textures. Welcome to In Conversation, the Voices of Ollie. Ollie, O-L-L-I, is an acronym for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, located at and networked with the Palm Desert campus of California State, San Bernardino. Dining and drinking are multi-sensory experiences. Sound, sight, and touch may play as key a role in your enjoyment of food and beverage as taste and smell. In their conversation, Ollie instructor Sean Ridgecreek has just learned that his student, Ms. Sean Shepard, has accepted an important new position in the food industry. To celebrate, she recently hosted a party with champagne and hors d'oeuvres curated to entice and feed all the senses. Really delighted to be moving to a new professional opportunity and we toasted with champagne and it's if every part of that process of the toast is is part of the joy of the new experience which is that's part of what I love champagne for. I think it starts actually even with the aesthetic beauty of a champagne bottle actually. Like I I resonate they're they're often more dramatic looking right even the top of it but but there's something about the it's a it's a softer shape because of the round bulbous bottom you know it's just got it's got so much going on visually before you ever get there and then for me that pop is you know everybody loves the champagne cork pop that's like that's that's a fun sound yeah, I, I think for me, the the it, it does start with the the visual appeal of the bottle. You know, they do look so much different than everything else on the shelf. And one of the ways that that they look different is they tend to have heavier labels. So mm-hmm. the weight of the paper on the label. So just the there there's a there's a definite different tactile feel to the bottle of champagne. And the other thing is the foil capsule that goes over the top of a bottle of, of most sparkling wine. Uh, tends to be longer. It goes a little bit further down um, the the neck of the bottle. And um, it requires just a little bit more effort to get that off than it does to get your typical wine foil capsule off, right? If you've ever cut the foil from a bottle of Dom Perignon, it's not super easy like it is getting, you can't just get out your little foil cutter like you do with a bottle of Chardonnay and get that foil capsule off. You kind of have to get the knife out and you want to make a good carve. And then uh, you get that off. And then there's there's the opening of it, right? Everybody knows you don't want to shake up a bottle of champagne before you 
you open it because you know you'll lose all the fizz. But the other reason is that there's actually a um, a safety issue in play there, right? Um, and so for me, opening that bottle um, is untwisting the, the, the metal cage at the top of the bottle. And I know from doing it hundreds of times, there's exactly six twists before, <laughs> before that, um, that metal cage is loose. And so once you get to that sixth um, twist, um, and it, you're supposed to hold the, 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 the part that sticks out between your two fingers, but at that point, the, the liquid inside is ready to be unleashed, right? And so you wanna be careful. And because I'm a big giant nerd, I don't do the pop as much. In fact, um, when you go through uh, restaurant service training, they'll teach you, you really, if you can avoid popping it, try to avoid popping it. And it should sound like a nun signing. I'm like, well, I, I never spent a lot of time with nuns and <laughs> nun sighing. I, I start to think of something different. <laughs> And so for me, there's a little bit more care and caution put into opening a bottle of sparkling wine than anything else. And that heightens that experience of, um, uh, of the enjoyment, right? Because you, you, you had to work a little bit harder at it. You had to be a little bit more careful. You had to protect that, that effervescence inside from spilling out. So when you finally get to pour it into your glass, it's already had so much damn pomp and circumstance that you're, 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 I'm literally salivating right now thinking of that. So when I look at a glass of champagne, it's got all those bubbles. It's so funny, but immediately I think of theater lighting. Like I have a, it's very theatrical. It very, it feels like, because all of the little bubbles are a light. They're all a, a source of brightness. And so I, I, to me, it always looks like I'm, you know, one of my favorite visuals as a person is like being somewhere above a city and looking down at all the lights at night, right? Like, I just think that's beautiful. And that to me is what champagne looks like in the glass. It's got all that, a, a million little points of light, right? In that glass. The, the visuality of, of a, just call it a glass of, of real French champagne. Um, there, there's, there's something about it. And, and this is, um, maybe I'm, I'm getting a little too wonky here, but there's something about it that is mysterious and there's something about it again that commands your attention because you're not looking at just a static um like like you look at a, the a glass of wine it's pretty much static you can swirl it around but there's not a lot going on as you look down into even if you look you're serving in a, in a wine glass or champagne flute there are literally millions of little bubbles of co2 that are flying out with all of their full force to get out of that glass and got goes you know go god knows where but all of that happening simultaneously with whatever light is available, refracting off of uh, the sides of the stemware. And there's a lot going on visually when you look at champagne. It's got gas, right? So you've got that, that effervescence, you've got that vigorousness of, of the bubble. Um, but there's a, there's a textural thing there beyond just the, um, the, the, the CO2 because it comes from such a cold place because it's it's frankly if you were to have champagne the the base wine that champagne is made of before it goes through that second fermentation and it picks up all of those those extra complexities most people wouldn't really like the base wine all that much huh. um, they tend to be very high in acid and so that that really brisk acidity comes through in the finished product so it's this awesome kind of um just juxtaposition of these two completely different textures. You've got the, the really 
almost velvety texture of the light bead of, of the CO2. But at the same time, you have this precision. You have this very strict kind of laser beam down the middle acidity. And both of those things happening simultaneously, it, it really, um, it demands your attention. I think that's the one thing I would say about champagne. It's not just a ritual. It's like once you take a sip of it, you, it demands your attention because you have so many different things happening. For me, the, the mouthfeel demands attention. I actually agree with that. I mean, one of the things I know everyone loves a mimosa, but the truth is I feel like a mimosa takes away from the experience of champagne. Like I, I, I would rather have the joy of champagne with a beautiful strawberry dropped into it or, you know, just those kinds of treats that, that give it the extra without, you know, throwing down a whole lot of orange juice on top of it. And part of the reason that I, I feel like I respond to champagne in that way and don't want it in those other forms is because I love First of all, you have to serve it really cold. And so I love that refreshing quality of the cold. And then in the acidity, having you talk about that, Sean, makes a lot of sense because I like that it tastes crisp. Like, like I just bit into like a Granny Smith apple and it got that, ooh, just a big mouth flavor that, that wakes me up, right? And, and, and is, you know, a delight. And it, it resonates for me with the celebratory memories right and and um I, and i love that i and i i you know, i've had some great champagne and i've had some cheaper champagne and frankly you know doesn't matter what the bot matters how it tastes and i've loved all of it i love that it's a celebration thing but i also love sometimes we'll have a great bottle of champagne with crackers and cheese and you know little meat just out on the patio and that's dinner champagne and snacks and I've had champagne and popcorn and thought it was one of the best nights ever. <laughs> it's a good night. That's a... <laughs> well, and, and to me, like a creamy textured whatever. Like, so, so let's say a great homemade macaroni and cheese, right? Dripping with cheeses and with a cream base, not, not skim milk, you know, go all in. Butter, real pasta, you know, all those good things. It's really good. But it's even better if you have the panko crunch on top, and you and so you've got both things going on, and 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 so I think about how we mix texture when we are cooking because we want that. I mean, I made mahi mahi last night and had a a crunchy uh, garlic top to it. Oh, it was just great. Well, you know, one of the things that that I respond to a lot in food and wine and 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 beverages is texture. So to me, like if I look at a plate, I want to see variants of texture. I want to see a variance of color. I want to see, I have a hard time with monochromatic meals. I don't want those on my plate, right? I want to see things be, be different. But that crunch of a, of a salty cracker with a soft cheese on it, and then follow that up with that, 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 that big push of the champagne bubbles. I mean, all, all of that is that wonderful contrast that you like having in a food experience. And, and uh, so I love a good crunchy cracker, but top it with a lovely cheese. And, and so, so having all of that in the mix um, is important to me. And I think a lot of people actually, my, my family teases me and tells me that I'm the inventor of the whole plate sandwich because I would take a roll and I would try to get as many different 
parts of the meal. So there'd be turkey, there'd be gravy, there'd be stuffing, there'd be potatoes onto that sandwich as possible. And, and what I loved about the sandwich, it wasn't necessarily all the flavors, all the different textures. <laughs> Temperature is absolutely part of the tactile sensory experience of food. And, and incredibly, I mean, I, I, I think I really, I've always been aware of temperature being important because temperature affects the creaminess level of something or it affects the liquidity of something or it infects, you know, everything, all of the texture of food is affected by what temperature it is. So that's why when you want to have a good cheese plate, you don't put the cheese on the plate two minutes before the guests arrive. You put the cheese on the plate hour, hour and a half before the guests arrive and you're letting it get to that room temperature. And, and then when it comes time to, you know, putting the apples and the grapes on, you're putting those out right at the end, right? Because you want to be cold and crisp and have all that, but you want that cheese to be room temperature and you want it to be kind of have that more environmentals opened up just the same way wine does, cheese will open up. So texture is so important. And, and temperature is so related to it. And a couple of years ago, there was this big movement afoot, and it's still very popular, of kind of fast freezing things. So that we would go to special events and there would be fast frozen um, uh, cereal as a, as a dessert item, right? So it's Fruit Loops that have been nitro frozen. And you, you get a little cup of Fruit Loops and they're steaming with the nitro steam off of them. But when you taste a, you know, a nitro frozen Fruit Loop, it has more flavor, more intensity, more of everything because it is hyper cold. And it's waking everything up in your tongue to say, taste all of this because it's right here, right now. And it's going to change in a half a second because the temperature is going to be different. Um, and I, I love that about temperature as part of food. You know, people will talk about if there's diversity in your palate experience, you enjoy all of it better. The conversation then turned from the topic of textures to the role of sound in the kitchen. Uh, there, there's a, a person who was really influential to me uh, about 10 years ago. His name's Hobie Wedler, and he is a UC Davis trained um, chemist. And he has worked for a long time in the wine business. He's been blind since birth. And kind of his, his contribution is reminding us to, to take advantage of the rest of your senses. He does this kind of sensory deprivation uh, tasting uh, class that really forces you. you. You put on blindfolds for an hour. And I don't know, most of us, if we've ever been blindfolded in our life, we haven't been blindfolded for an hour. And uh, you do things like, you know, you, you basically walk, walk through the vineyards blindfolded and you, you spend a good hour kind of living in his world um, and really forcing you to, to pay attention to your other senses. And so for me, sound now is actually something I pay a lot more attention to. Ultimately, sound is really important in the kitchen and cooking for me. And part of it is my experience as a child. And I had this grandmother who was this amazing cook and she would do all these things, but you would end up having four or five things going at one time, right? The fried chicken is going and the mashed potatoes are going and then all those. And very early in my life, I used to hear her say, uh, I, I, the chicken is done. I hear it. It's done. And, and, and I would think, how is it possible that 
the chicken is making a sound that it's done. Like I can smell it. And I, if I go over to the frying pan, I can look at it and I could go, Oh, it's nice and crispy and brown. And you know, this was good, good old school fried chicken, by the way, like classic fried chicken, but she could, she could hear it in the sound and in the sound of, I, and I know in, when you are starting to fry something and you're starting to make candy or all those things and you throw a little water in, you listen for the sizzle. You don't, you don't watch it. You're listening for it to do exactly what it's supposed to do. <laughs> so I, so I really resonate with sound in the kitchen. You know, one, one of my favorite sounds, one of my favorite things in the world is I'm a, I'm a freshly ground black pepper dude. There is almost nothing that I don't put pepper on. Um, and I'm a snob. I don't, I can't just take pepper out of a pepper. I've got to grind it. Um, I actually make it a point to go to cost plus a couple times a year because you can buy different peppercorn mixes there that you can't get anywhere else. And so I've got, um, not, not, not kidding you. I've got three different pepper grinders in, in my kitchen right now that all have a different mix of, of peppercorns in them. And so for me, one of the, the sounds that actually gets me hungriest is when I start to grind that pepper. Mm. Each one of my pepper grinders, because mechanically they're different, but also because the peppercorns in them are different and have slightly different hardnesses to them. They all make a slightly different sound when you grind the pepper. And that sound actually gets me thinking about what that's going to taste like on the you know, there's, there's one mix that I use that I like to put on vegetables. It's got some um, like white and, uh, and red and green peppercorns on it. And that's, I associate that with, with fresh things like cucumbers and salad vegetables, right? And then I've got another one that's just kind of more of your standard peppercorn mix, which is kind of my all purpose. But then I've got one, which is a really expensive Malabar black peppers. And the only time I really use them is on a steak. Steak. <laughs> so, so that I really start thinking in terms of um, not just steak, but steak and mushrooms and red wine reductions and all that stuff. And and the sounds of those things are uh, the first, really the first sensory prompt that gets my brain uh, headed in in that direction. Charles Spence of Oxford University in England has revolutionized the field of taste and how flavor is perceived by your ears and eyes, as well as touch receptors. He likes to call it gastrophysics. <laughs> in a seminal test, Dr. Spence asked his students to take a bite of dark chocolate and listen to two soundscapes. One was pitched high, the other low. Well, amazingly, the high pitched created a sweeter perception of taste the low pitch, a more bitter one. We recreated the test for Ms. Shepard and Mr. Rich Creek. <laughs> they each took a bite of dark chocolate, oh, yum yum, as we played a high and low tone. Would the taste of the same chocolate change? Listen in. That was the high tone. Now listen, not only to the low bass tone, but also to their reaction to how these tones affected their taste buds. <laughs> so how did the dark chocolate taste on the high treble tone? Sweet uh, and yeah. light. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll use the first one, but that's exactly what I found. It tasted sweeter on the first one. Mm -hmm. Same chocolate, but more bitter on the lower bass notes. That is a cool, that's a cool illustration. It's immediate. Same bite of chocolate, 
Oh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen to your food and your drink. Also, while you're at it, listen to our Ollie casts available on Apple, Google, Audible, and bunches of other podcast platforms. Our thanks to Cal State San Bernardino in Palm Desert, along with communications study professor Lacey Kendall and her media students. This podcast was produced for Ollie by Lou Gorfing. And I am Dr. Arlette Poland. 